0: Uh, We begin our study on the book of Ruth, and grace will lead me home, and today the title of this sermon is, Sometimes We Run Away, and the reason is, is sometimes we run away. I'd like to read the first five verses of Luke, and for us to remember that men are like grass, like the glory of the field, they wither and die, but the word of our God, it stands forever. So this is the very word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Mylon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years, and both Milan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. When Benjamin Franklin was our first ambassador to France, um, there are a lot of reports about his ambassadorship uh, and what he did in Paris, and how he got to know the elite and, of paris and and tried to get help uh monetary help uh war material help for us while we were in the revolution with britain but uh one of the one of the scenes from his ambassadorship is that he frequented a a gentleman's club uh called the Infidels Club. Now before your mind goes too crazy, this is about literature. The Infidels Club was kind of this high class club where where they'd get together and uh, each of the people in the Infidels Club would would go and and search for some great piece of literature and they would bring it to the club and then they would read it out loud and then the club would critique it. So Benjamin Franklin stood up one night at the Infidels Club and he read the biblical book of Ruth, except... He changed all the names and all the circumstances so that they would not be able to recognize the story. And uh, as he read the story, they were mesmerized. And when he got to the end of the story, they they just said, "This this is one of the most engaging short stories we have ever heard. Where in the world did you find such an incredible work of literature? And only then did he reveal that it was the biblical book of Ruth. And I want you to know... This is a great story that happened. This is a story about a family in Israel and all the struggles that that family has to face. Uh, This is a story about how people wander away from God and how when they hit the bottom, God is there with open arms. And and this is a story of redemption and how God's love triumphs over our folly and it is a romance. But you're going to have to wait a few weeks before we get to the romance part. So what I'd like to do this morning is is introduce this book to you and and to to properly help you understand where and what and who I'd like for you to understand three things this morning. I want you to understand the times, the people, and the struggle. The times, the setting, the, the the characters, the people, and the struggle that they faced that is this story. First is the times, and it was the worst of times. Verse 1 says, in the day that the judges ruled. And uh, if you know anything about the period of, of, of the Judges, uh, this is after they've come into the land, uh, this is after uh, a generation arose that knew not the Lord, and 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 it's just not a great period. But, you know, Israel would go through whole stretches of time where they would functionally act like God was no longer God. God was no longer their king. And they would worship the gods of the Canaanites, and it was a time of moral and spiritual anarchy. In fact, in the book of Judges, there's a, an oft-repeated phrase in the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21:25, and I, I love it in the King James Version. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you get that? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And uh, let me tell you, that sentence describes today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's the idea that maybe there's not a God, maybe there's not a, a king, maybe there's no ultimate standard of right and wrong. No, I decide what's true. I decide what is right and wrong, and maybe as importantly, I do what I want to do. And if you got everybody deciding what's right and everybody deciding what's wrong on their own and everybody deciding what they want to do outside of the truth and love of God, you've got some chaos. Well, there was a standard. and We learned this through some very hard things that happened. There was the one true and living God and he would not gone anywhere. And His Word remained true. And the Israelites at that time simply did not receive His uniqueness anymore. The Israelites at that time had a very low view of the Word of God. And I tell you, even among God's people, when we begin to fade in the the sense of the clarity of the uniqueness of the one true and living God and the only and when we begin to lose a a sense of of a high view of the Word of God as the revelation of the only God. Same thing happens today. And so in the book of Judges, God would bring consequences. He would bring correction on his people to show them that they needed him. He would allow these warlords to maraud his own people and conquer his people and, you know, they, they'd get conquered and they'd go into these really hard times and somewhere in the midst of all that misery, they'd say, you know, we need God. And be, and because of that pressure the Lord allowed on their lives, they would begin to call out to God and um, then, of course, they would get comfortable and then they would get slack And then the same kind of thing would happen, and there would be... And and each time that they went through these hard times where they were conquered, God would raise up what was called a judge. He would raise up a leader to kind of lead them out of oppression, lead them into freedom, lead them back to himself. And let me tell you, the, the judges in the book of Judges are very uneven. It's an interesting read. You really ought to read the book of Judges. But here... And now, in the book of Judges, and many people think maybe the time of Gideon, but we're not certain. But here and now, there's a famine in the land. I love what uh, the Puritan Matthew Henry says about this. He says, a fruitful land is turned into barrenness to correct and restrain the luxury of and wickedness of those who live there. Don't you love those words to correct and restrain the luxury and the wickedness of those who live there? Maybe we could put it like this. The land that's flowing with milk and honey, remember that's what the promised land is, is dry as chalk. Leviticus 26, 19 and 20 kind of gives us a little insight into this. I want you to hear God's words I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because the soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. God is saying, I will bring this about. In our passage, it says, in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. It was the worst of times. It's during the judges. And it's during a famine. Got it? That's the setting. Second is the people. Now you learn about the people in the book of Ruth by understanding their names. And I'm not going to do all the names today, but you you, you really learn. For instance, the uh, the the first person introduced, the patriarch of this family, Elimelech. His name means literally. God is my king. That's a great name, isn't it? God is my king. That's Elimelech. Naomi, uh, and there are people named Naomi today that probably know their name means pleasant. So Naomi means pleasant. And then where they live, Bethlehem and Judah, is literally translated the house of bread and praise. So, each of these names actually become important in these first five verses, and each of them becomes a point of irony. For instance, there's no bread in the house of bread. You see the irony of that? People in the house of bread don't have bread. Life is unpleasant for pleasant, and doing what is right in my own eyes is going to be the great temptation for God is my king. And I don't know about you, but I think I can certainly identify with with the book of Ruth at this point. I mean, we too have troubles, and, and we, we too have life getting unpleasant at different points. And uh, living without difficulty is simply not an option. And so maybe the question we ought to ask is, when things get unpleasant, what are you going to do? How does a Christian respond to... Difficulty and unpleasantness. Well, we can pretend like it's not there. It's called denial. A lot of people are good at that. We can try to control it and overpower it in our own strength. And and we've all done that one. Uh, Or we can run away from it. Or we can trust God with it. Those are kind of the options. I'm always amazed at how some believers try to use the faith, use Christianity in a way to avoid all struggles in their life. God never intends for us, they say, never intends for us to ever be sick, never be sad, never be financially challenged. just not the will of God if you're sick. It's not the will of God if things are unpleasant. I'm telling you, those folks had not read the book of Ruth. Yeah, I think we all kind of struggle with wanting it to be that way. We imagine if we're just pleasant and we live in the house of bread and play, praise, um, things are just they're just going to be bread. You know, if we're pleasant and God is our king, there's just going to be bread and, and overflow all the time. But in the first verse of the book of Ruth, there is trouble in paradise. There is a famine in the house of bread and praise. So, how will God is my king react to this trouble? How will Pleasant react to this trouble? Okay, those are the people. And they've got two sons we'll talk about next week. Okay, so we've got the times when the judges ruled. There's a famine. We've got God is my king. We've got Pleasant, and they live in the house of bread and praise, and there's a famine. So, I want to talk about The conflict. You know, the conflict in this book, the struggle. This is what draws us into this book, the struggle. So we get to the heart of the matter. How will they respond? The text says that Elimelech was an Ephrathite. And what is an Ephrathite? Well, um, that could mean that he is from Ephrathah, which is right there in where Bethlehem is, but um, it also is referred to sometimes about who people are in that particular culture. Cyril Barber states, to be born an Ephrathite meant that Elimelech was of an ancient and noble family lineage. He says it was the equivalent today of, of coming from a well-established family in Boston, or a third-generation resident of Charleston, South Carolina. You, you understand what I'm saying? They, they, yeah, they're not just from there. The the Jewish Midrash says that an Ephrathite means an aristocrat. That's, that's the, the book of Jewish tradition. And that Elimelech was an aristocrat from that area, went way back. Leader in the Kind of a leading citizen of the town sort of person. So the story begins with, with God kind of pressing on his people to bring him back to himself just as Elimelech's herds are dying. That's where the money was back then. It was in land and it was in herds. And, uh, so Elimelech looks at the dry fields. Around Bethlehem and Judah. And he hears that just 50 miles, just 50 miles east of Bethlehem, there is no famine. You just cross over the Jordan River and you cross over the, the Dead Sea and it is this country called Moab. And Moab looks like an agricultural postcard. Moab looks like Ireland. Compared to Bethlehem and Judah, dry as dust. So, what is God is my king going to do? He's used to his standard of living, evidently. I mean, I suppose he could trust God to survive the famine. Might even have to give away some of his livestock to help some other people survive or just give money To help some other people survive, but he don't want to just survive. No, that'd be losing too much. So so what does he do? Well, we learn in the passageway he does. He takes his family and we suppose his livestock to go live. Sojourn is the word in Moab. And sojourn means just a little, just a little while. You know, just going to live there for a little while. Just going to sojourn there. And what we find is that just as the last verse of Judges says, Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes. God is my king, decided for himself what was right. What a great business decision. What a tragic spiritual decision. There is no record of seeking God here. There is no record of consideration of God being king in the life of God is my king. All we read is there was a famine and he up and moved. Now, you might ask, what's so wrong with that? I mean, you know, didn't Joseph go down to Egypt and didn't um, di- different people go down to Egypt actually? I mean, yeah, they, he went down to Egypt when he was sold into slavery. Yeah, they went down to Egypt when uh, when God led them down there. What's so wrong with that? I mean, the equity's draining away, people. What's wrong with that? Well, let me just give you a little biblical history on Moab. It didn't start real well for the Moabites. You've got to go back to Genesis 19 and Abraham's nephew, Lot. Do you all remember him, Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Lot had two daughters, and they got him drunk one night, and he slept with them. And the child of incest of his oldest daughter was named Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. In fact, in Psalm sixty eight, God declares what he thinks about the Moabites, and I quote, Moab is my washpot, declares the Lord. Translated, Moab is my toilet. That's just the start. Remember Balak, the king of Moab, who hired Balaam to curse the Israelites? Well, if you don't remember us, okay. It's numbers 22 through 24 trying to trick the uh the Israelites and and have them cursed. And then in one chapter after that in 25 we read about the women of Moab seducing the Israelite men to indulge in sexual immorality and worship their gods and they did and God's quote anger burned against them. And when the people came into the promised land in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, they were specifically forbidden to make any treaties with the Moabites by God himself. Oh yeah, did I mention Chemosh? That's who they worship in Moab. And the church of Chemosh isn't a sweet little church. Chemosh evidently has a bloodlust for the blood of infants. And child sacrifice, and yes, believe it or not, these infants made in the image of God were born, and they were pitched into the fires of the altar, burned alive to make Kimash happy. This is not a great place. Did I mention that Chemosh was a fertility god? And fertility gods were important in that area because it was agricultural in terms of Flocks in terms of, 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 crops and, and by fertility, you know, that, that the, 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 livestock would, would stay healthy and reproduce and that the, the grain would, you know, come to, to fruition and that, that whole cycle would happen. And so, uh, how, how did you get Chemosh to bring fertility? Well, it's kind of like Baal or, or Baal. In the highest places, you remember, have you ever heard the term, the high places? These are places of worship of these horrible deities. And what you got to do on the high places, and the reason they're high is so Kemosh so can see clearly what's going on. Uh, you engage in what's called temple prostitution. Oh, I get it. The church services are orgies of prostitution to remind Kemosh of what needs to happen with a certain goddess so that there can be fertility. This is nuts. Finally, the Moabites, not terribly much earlier than this period we're talking about in the Judges. In Judges 3.14, the Moabites themselves had conquered the Israelites under Eglon, the king of the Moabites, and pressed Israel into 18 years of hard servitude. You get the picture here? Uh, 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 The original audience of Jewish readers would definitely get the picture about Moab. Definitely. Moab is not a place that a God-fearing Jew would take his family on vacation. Much less go live there. But it's only for a little while. Only for a little while. This is pragmatism. It'll work. Elimelek said in effect, "I'll just go where there's not any problems. I'm sure you and I've never done that before." And God is my king. Without consulting God, has just jumped to Moab, and not for missionary purposes. Now, you know, there are people who say there's nothing wrong with this decision. You cannot demonstrate conclusively that there's something wrong. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If that's true, let us agree that this was not great. Let us agree that um, Elimelech was no different from his neighbors who stayed. In fact, we're going to meet somebody in, in a few chapters, Elimelech's own cousin named Boab, who stayed and faced the famine and trusted God, another wealthy Ephrathite in Bethlehem and Judah. No seeking of the Lord. If it's not wrong, it's just expedient. And it was calamitous. And we will hear Naomi say, don't call me Naomi. When she returns, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord's hand of correction has gone out on me. Has come out upon me. So the times, the people, the struggle with what they 're going to do, let me ask you, what do you do? What do you do when when some trouble comes into your life, and are you willing to admit that that's just a part of life and we and we can 't pretend like it 's not there we can 't whine and complain. That in a fallen world, trouble comes into our lives. It's coming to all of our lives. It's already been in our lives. It will return. You understand? It's a fallen world. What are we going to do? So often we do what Elimelech did. We just take the quick and easy way out. Sometimes we run away, don't we? Got a tough job? Just quit. I think we quit too fast sometimes. I think we quit a lot of things too fast. You got struggles in your marriage? I want out. I want out. And let me ask you, what marriage has not gone through times of testing? Every couple will have to decide to stay and trust God with whatever they have to wrestle with. Yes or no? Yes. In the church, we have ministries, and it requires a lot of patience because it's a volunteer workforce. And you know, sometimes when things just aren't going the way you want it to go and you know you're you're an influence in this ministry and it's just not happening the way you want it to you say, I, I just think I need to step aside. On out. I love how one scholar puts it, he puts it like this we're like grasshopper people. We're like grasshopper people. Jumping around from one thing to the next, never staying long enough to feel the current of God's working in our lives. That is profound. We're like grasshopper people, jumping around from one thing to the next, never staying long enough to feel the current of God's working in our life. Now, I will tell you something, and I'm not proud of it, but it's true. Before Gina and I married, I had a way of getting out of relationships when they weren't going the way I wanted them to go. And this was a a serial issue in my life. But when we got married, it was bracing to realize with stone certainty, before God and man, her family and my family, there is no back door. Till death Do us part. And I'm just glad she realized the same thing, by the way. And I will tell you, as a sinner, marriage has been good for me. In many ways, and having to stay put and work through things is one of the good things that God does in our lives through marriage. And I want to ask you, what about you? Do you trust God? Do you work it through, do you seek the Lord, or do you just jump? Right now, right now, whatever it is you're going through, are you going to seek God, or are you going to jump? Now, I'm not saying you can't vacate a situation. I don't know what God's will for your life is, but be still and know that I'm God. Be still long enough to seek God. And to trust in the Lord. just the struggle, isn't it? That's the struggle. Lastly, I want you to see what happened to these people. You know, the trouble they sought to escape in Bethlehem kind of caught up to them in Moab. And that's the hard truth of of just how this story begins. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite wives. We'll talk about that next week. She married. They married Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was named Ruth, and they lived there in Moab for about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And let me tell you something, to be a widow without husband and without children in Israel was bad enough. It was horrible for that to happen to you in a foreign land. Please remember this. Just avoiding problems and running from problems has a way of creating new ones. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence the grass is greener where you water it where you seek god where you focus where you bring god's grace to bear where you follow the lord um uncle remus had it right didn't he remember uncle remus bear rabbit one thing for show you can't run away from your troubles i mean that's right In fact, the safest place you can be is in the middle of God's will. Maybe we could put it this way. Bethlehem, in the midst of a struggle, is safer sometimes than Moab in plenty. Did you catch what I just said? So we begin the story with people who are not equivalent to their names. Pleasant isn't. Because God is my king does what's right in his own eyes. And the bottom drops out. Now, I'm not going to say, have a nice day right here, okay? That's not the only message in the book. This is just the setting. This is just the beginning point to where we can deep dive down into this struggle and down into this agony. This is the precise place where the grace and love and mercy of God is going to shine so brilliantly, you see. We also learn... That when we make a from this book, I mean, when we make a wrong turn, you ready for this? We can return. We don't have to stay there. When we make a wrong turn, we can return or, or repent is the biblical way of saying that, because if you've put your trust in Jesus what he's done for you, bringing you, to, he takes our sin, pays for it. We trust in him and what he's done, and, and we just trade our sins for relationship or brought into his arms. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you understand he will never leave you or forsake you. There will never be a moment in your life where you look, look up and say, God's not here. Wherever it is that you are right now, whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, and whether you're going to trust God or whether you're going to jump or whether you're going to run or you're going to try to control it, whatever it is, realize God is there. He's there. And we will see starting next week that God is always gracious to receive us when we confess our sins. He will always lead us. You know, with the Lord... There's always bread. We worry. We got. We got. There's not enough bread. We got to go do. We got to go here. No, with the Lord, there's always bread because He is the bread. He is the bread of life, as we'll find out later in this book. He is here. So in your fear, in your mighty struggle, in your weakness, don't jump. Turn to the one who loves you the most. Turn to the one who really is king. God is my king. Let's pray. Lord, help us to just have this view of you that you are king. That you are God. We act like you're not king. We feel like we have to be two steps ahead of everybody. We feel like we have to overpower things. We feel like we have to run from things. We feel like we don't want to face things. But Lord, You're King. God, right where folks are right now, would You minister to them by, by showing us spiritually that you're not standing standing off at a distance. That you so love the world that you you came here. You entered into time and space. You entered into our lives through what you did on the cross, so that you could be our Father and our King. If you've never put your trust in Christ, you've tried to do it all on your own, and you know that you can't. Just pray with me, Lord. I see it, and I, I don't want to do this on my own anymore. I want to turn from everything that I've called religion and everything I've called Christianity and I want to put my trust, Jesus, in what you have done. Thank you that even now you've forgiven me. Even now you've taken me into your arms. Even now you have made me one of your sons or daughters. Even now you are not only king, but you're my father. Lord, there are many of us who've walked with you for some time and this book of Ruth just comes at a a really important time in our lives as we are facing decisions, as we are facing troubles, as we are afraid of things that might happen and might happen to people that we love and we don't know what to do. Lord, would You reestablish functionally Your kingship in our life through reestablishing closeness because of Your Son. And Your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the very Comforter, the very Teacher, the very One who will come alongside and lead us into all truth. Lord, in the midst of our fear, would You help us to be still and know that You are God. Help us to say with our lives, God is my King. Thank You for Your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace.